that Paul outlines. The answer, if it's not clear, is no. But that reminds us that whenever we come to the Bible, we come with a whole load of cultural baggage and assumptions. And in many cases, we come with reactions against experiences or notions that we may have from elsewhere. And what I'm going to ask us to do is to try and acknowledge those things that may influence our instinctive response to these words. But then, and this is the really important bit, to try and not assume that we already know what these verses mean. And I say that whether you would consider yourself maybe a signed-up feminist, whether a Christian or or not yet trusting in Jesus, or or conversely, a Christian who thinks they've heard this a hundred times before. We need to understand this in its original context and then consider what it means for us today. So I I think more than ever, do make sure you've got got this open in front of you on page 1176, because I don't think what I'm saying is going to make much sense without seeing where it comes from in front of us. And and the question is not what I think about these things. I'm not just telling you my my thoughts. I'm trying to show us what we understand, what we see here in Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians, um, Paul has been laying out God's master plan for his world. His plan to unite all people and all things under one head. Jesus. And we've seen that that plan is demonstrated in miniature, in advance, in the church. Church is a scale model of what will one day be true for all people everywhere. That all people will bow the knee to Jesus, whether willingly or unwillingly. And in chapters 4 to 6, we've been seeing what this scale model looks like in practice, living out the unity we have in Christ. And at the end of the passage last week, Paul talked about living a life of worship, filled with the Spirit. And literally what he says goes like this, be filled with the Spirit, verse 18. And then it kind of, the sentence continues, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music, giving thanks to God the Father. And then verse 21, submitting, still same sentence, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then still the same sentence, verse 22, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the word submit in our translations in verse 22 is carried over from verse 21, which is about a general submission to one another. And the whole thing is a working out of being filled with the Spirit. Paul is saying this is what a Spirit-filled life looks like in the area of marriage in particular. This is how God designed marriage to be. Now, it's worth saying, verse 21 tells us Christians should be generally submissive towards one another. And yet, actually, that doesn't necessarily mean it's always 100% symmetrical. Uh, So, you think about the other ways that, you know, one another commands kind of work. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 is another example. It talks about bearing one another's burdens. Actually, when you think about that, that means some carrying a burden, some letting their burden be carried by others. It's not necessarily 100% symmetrical. There's a complementarity between people. And that is the kind of thing Paul is describing here as we look at marriage. It's a complementarity between wives and husbands. But as I said before, don't jump to conclusions about what that complementarity is before we've looked at the text. 
So there's two big things to see in these verses. As we saw before, that the church is in one sense God's visual aid for what eternity will look like. Remember that? Well, now we see that the gospel is God's visual aid for marriage and marriage is God's visual aid for the gospel. So if we're married, we need to realise that it is the gospel that should inform and shape our marriages. But then whether we are married or not married, we need to realise that God has given marriage to mankind in order to inform and shape our understanding of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. So there's something here for all of us to to understand, whatever our life situation. Let's see then, first of all, the gospel is God's visual aid for marriage. The gospel is God's visual aid for marriage. So first we look at wives, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now very unusually, the translation we have in front of us has missed out a word. And literally, Paul emphasises your own husband's. So in other words, he's, and I think probably the translators here thought that was obvious, you know, wives to your husbands, they didn't need to say own because it's, it's sort of implicit, which it is, but it, it's, it's, he's explicitly saying, not other people's husbands, that, that isn't what this is talking about. Submit to your own husbands if you have one. He's the one you're called to submit to if you are a wife. Now, we, we, we may think we know what submit means, and that may kind of set off kind of alarm bells in our heads, but the question is, what did Paul mean by it. And Paul explains what he means. He says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. And so as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And again, the question is, what does Paul then mean by head? And again, not what do we think that means and what, you know, what kind of things does that set off in our heads? No, we're told actually what he means by head earlier in the book. So chapter 1, verse 22. Jesus has been appointed head over all things for the church. In other words, for the benefit of the church. <clears throat> Which at that point was an extraordinary thing to hear back in chapter 1. That the, the reason Jesus came and he died and he rose and the reason he's at the centre of God's master plan for the entire cosmos and the reason everything's been put under his feet is for the church. So how does Jesus feel about the church? Well, he died for her. What kind of head is Jesus then? He's the kind that says, church, I am willing to go to the cross and to suffer and to die for you. So Paul is saying, wives, model your submission to your own husbands on the gospel. Model it on the way the church submits to Christ, who is her head, who died for her benefit. So let me ask you this. Is submitting to Jesus as a Christian... A bad thing to do. Well, our culture would say it's a terrible thing, it's a crazy thing to do. But a Christian says, well, no, actually, it's a liberating thing to do. It's not a coerced thing. I do this willingly because I know that Jesus has my best interests at heart. Even if following him is sometimes painful, even if things happen and I don't quite understand how that fits with God's plan, well, I trust him. I willingly submit to him. That is the starting point. So if you're thinking, well, come on, Paul, don't be crazy. I could never do what you're asking wives to do. Well, if you're a Christian, you already have. You are submitting 
to Jesus. That's what a Christian is. So model your submission to your husband on your submission to him. And if you're not yet following Jesus, well actually you need to get things straight with Jesus before you can consider what this means for marriage. Because it will never make any sense if you've not first worked out what it means to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to submit to him. Well, maybe so far so good, and we'll come to sort of practical questions about what that means in a short while. But I suppose the question then is, why not make it symmetrical? Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why not husbands then submit to your wives? And this is where we need to realise that what husbands are now called to in these verses is in many ways even more extraordinary. Husbands... Love your wives, he says. Okay, well, fair enough. Love your wives, pretty obvious. But modelled on what kind of love? Well, on the love with which Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. What kind of love is that then? Is Is that a selfish, me first, do as I say, fetch my dinner kind of love? I don't think so. It's a garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done kind of love. It's a love that pours itself out for others, even to death on a cross. And so is this then a return to the 1950s housewife view of the world or an argument simply for a conservative view of traditional gender roles? Well, it's anything but, isn't it? It's a self-sacrificing, self-denying kind of love. This is what you might call servant leadership. Think of how Jesus expressed his identity as the Son of God. What did it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Well, John tells us at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And then he says, next verse, so, therefore, because of what it meant to be the one who come from God, what would you expect him to say? You know, he sat down, he'd come from God, so he sat down and he asked the guy on his left to get him some food, wash his feet, sort him out, please. No, that's not what it says. Therefore, in the light of his identity, in the light of who he is, come from God, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, And he wrapped a towel around his waist. He took the form of a servant. He washed his disciples' feet. This is the king of the universe. See, when you look at Jesus, there is no doubt that he is the leader. He is the head. But he leads by serving. So husbands, Paul is saying, as the head, love your wives like that. And he then gives some motivations in verses 26 to 30. So he says, Christ died to make the church holy, to cleanse her, to present her as holy and blameless. And of course, that is a role that he has uniquely. He doesn't share Uh, that role with husbands. But he he says, make that your model and your standard. In other words, make your wife's holiness 
your priority. And if you look on more than that, you are one flesh, members of one body, so caring for your wife is caring for yourself. So husbands, he's saying, caring for your wives spiritually and physically matters. Pray for her. Initiate praying with her. Encourage her as she walks the the Christian walk. Even consider her holiness a priority over your own. Sacrifice your time and energy if you need to so that she gets the space to grow as a Christian. And that then brings us to the more specific questions of how we work this out in practice. And we need to be really careful here because it's so easy to jump into kind of culturally conditioned specific commandments about, you know, who takes the bins out or who drives the car or whose career takes priority or whatever it is. But really that's, making, that's missing the point. And lots of these things are best worked out in prayerful conversation between a husband and a wife uh, with these verses and others like them open in front of us. And if necessary, talking it through with others as well to work it through. But I want to think about the times when this is hard. When somebody says, well, this is fine in theory, but actually I'm married and he doesn't love me like this. Or she's not very submissive. Or he or she is not a believer, maybe. What then? Or what if he tells me to do something illegal? Or worse, he's being abusive in some way, not just physically, but, you know, those emotional forms of abuse and kind of controlling ways that relationships can, the form that relationships can sometimes take. You know, must I still submit? Or maybe you're worried about somebody else in that situation. Must they still submit? Is that what I should be encouraging my, my Christian friend? And there's lots to think about here. But the the point to understand is this. This is how God has set up marriage. It is his blueprint for marriage. It's the kind of ideal. And it is to be shaped by the gospel. But we heard in the reading from Genesis 3 that sin messes everything up. So right from the beginning, as soon as the, the first sin had been committed, Adam is kind of passing the buck, trying to get out of t- um, taking responsibility for what's happened. It wasn't me, it was her fault, it was you, you gave her to me, you know, all that kind of thing. Nothing to do with me. And God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And the words there describe a tug of war over power where both parties are fighting not for the other but for themselves see sin and its consequences spoil everything which means for example a husband who chooses to put his own needs first instead of his wife's is not ceasing to be the head of his wife as paul describes it here he's just being a very poor head and here's the thing and this is really important to to see he doesn't say wives Tell your husbands to love like this, and particularly when he's not doing it, make sure that he knows he's not loving you like this. And he doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit to you, particularly when they disagree with you. You know, open up the Bible and say, ah, look, it says here you're supposed to be doing this, huh? No, he doesn't say that. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. And he says, husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. This is what playing the role of wife or husband looks like. Focus on the command that you've been given. But what, okay, what if there's disagreement? What, what if he's just plain wrong about something? 
What if she, in fact, knows a lot more about the situation? Well, this is where gospel humility is absolutely vital. Husbands, Paul is saying, your role is to lead, to take the initiative by by considering your wife's needs first and, and putting them first, to set aside your own preferences for her holiness. So if there's an area of disagreement, well, think twice. Think very carefully before trying to overrule. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe this is an issue of holiness, of godliness. Or maybe you just want to be right. But a servant leader is the complete opposite of a dictator. Take the time to listen, to understand, to show you value her opinion before you act. Because Jesus humbled himself and gave up his rights for the church. That is how you are called to love. And wives, Paul is saying, well, you too need to think twice, think very carefully before you dig in and refuse to listen. Submit as to the Lord, he says. Now, let's be clear here. If if he's saying to do something illegal or something that's ungodly, Or to be clear, if he's behaving abusively in that full range of things, you know, whether it's violence, whether it's kind of completely unreasonable controlling behaviour about finances or whatever it is, well, that is the kind of situation where you need to go and get help. Get out, call the police, or, you know, it may just be going to talk to friends about it. I think we can be so proud sometimes about thinking we've got to sort all this out by ourselves we wouldn't do that with any other area in the christian life so don't do it with marriage but if it's not that situation if it's just that you think he's wrong or he's being an idiot and he might be you know and you may just think you're way more knowledgeable than him about whatever it is well again think very carefully Because the gospel means humbling ourselves and submitting to Jesus. And Paul is saying, humble yourself like that. It's not saying there should never be discussion. It's not saying there should even never be a, a full and frank exchange of views, as the politicians might put it. But overall, it should be done in a spirit of humility. The presumption that I might not have the full facts, I might not see the full story. See, the overall picture is a husband modelling the gospel by leading his wife, which means putting her interests before his own. And in that context, submission will not seem such a strange thing to do. So what if the wife is saying, well, I want to submit, but he constantly just puts himself first. Or the husband says, I want to consider her interests first, but all she does is undermine me. Well, that is where we need the gospel once again. We need to trust God. We need to be patient. We need to be humble. We need to trust him that when he says this is how marriages are, it's up to us to play our part faithfully because he honours faithfulness. And again, the gospel is the model. Because did, did Jesus wait So we were good enough for him to die for us? Did he wait for us to show we were receptive towards his love? No, it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel logic is that that we continue to be faithful in the role that we've been called to, rather than wait for the other person to do their bit. 
Well, this needs prayer, doesn't it? And it's why marriage isn't something to be entered into lightly and why if you're considering a potential marriage partner, you need to be asking, as appropriate, is this someone I could submit to? Is this someone I could lay down my life for? And if that person is not a Christian or is not going to help you as a Christian to grow in your Christian life, can you see why the Bible counsels against a Christian marrying a non-Christian? Can you, can you see why it does that? Because one of the reasons is that it makes living these roles even harder than they would be otherwise. Now, it's all very well saying that before two people are married. It's different if you already find yourself in that situation. And the Bible does talk about that. And 1 Peter chapter 3 is another helpful place to, to, to read on that. Uh, we don't have time to look at it now, but that's, that's, that's where I'd turn with somebody if, if you want to think about that more. So the gospel is God's visual aid for marriage. And then much more briefly, secondly, marriage is God's visual aid for the gospel. Marriage is God's visual aid for the gospel. So verse 31, he's quoting from Genesis and he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And I think our instinct when we hear that is, oh yes, he's obviously talking about marriage. You know, there's the sort of mystical <clears throat> um, side of, of marriage. You know, no one understands it. Well, this is, look at what he says. I'm talking about Christ and the church. We won't properly understand marriage till we understand it was never intended to be an end in itself. Paul is saying, way back when God made the world and he made the male and female and he created marriage, as we read in Genesis, his intention was to model the gospel. The mystery, remember, that earlier in Ephesians, Paul told us had been revealed to him that Jews and Gentiles are included together in God's people on the same terms. The one fleshness of marriage is intended to be a picture of that mystery. And you won't really understand marriage, Paul is saying, till you see how it's pointing to that. Which is why we're not free to change the definition of marriage. Again, the world thinks we're mad, and it, it would be mad if marriage were nothing more than an agreement between two individuals. You know, why should anyone else have any say in what contract they choose to draw up between themselves? But that's not what marriage is. It's a visual aid for the gospel. And if you mess with the visual aid, you mess with the gospel itself. Because in the gospel, Christ is not the church. And the church is not Christ. The church submits to Christ, but does not die for Christ. And Christ dies for the church, but does not submit to her. That's why we sometimes call this understanding of marriage complementarian, because husband and wife are equal but different from one another, modelling that distinction in role between Christ and the church. And so he concludes in verse 33, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband's. So whether we're married or not married, whether we're Christian or non-Christian, can you see what marriage is supposed to be proclaiming about the gospel? 
marriage proclaims how Christ and the church are united in a one flesh, one body intimacy. So that means being a Christian is not a cold list of hard rules. It's a living relationship with Jesus who died for us and with one another in the church. That is the ultimate goal, whether we're married or not married. And can you see that, that when you view it like this, this is liberating if you're married and it's liberating if you're not. <clears throat> it's liberating if you're married because it actually takes the pressure off marriage or, or making marriage be the be-all and end-all in your life, which really is idolatry. And of course we want to work hard at our marriages, but they will be more healthy when we live them with our eyes on the goal of knowing Christ. And it's liberating if you're not married, because while the world says the only way to find fulfilment is in an intimate relationship with another person, actually even marriage itself is designed to say this will never be where you find ultimate fulfilment. That fulfilment is only available in union with Christ. So as we finish then, there's so much here that is challenging. You know, if, if after listening to all this you still completely disagree, can I encourage you to keep looking at these verses and think clearly what it is about this that you don't agree with? Because that's where the conversation needs to be. You know, agree, agreeing with the minister about the interpretation of these verses is not a precondition for membership at St John's, but positively, I want to say to us, Look at how marriage is intended to magnify the gospel. And if we just ignore all this, we're at the very least missing another opportunity to proclaim the gospel by showing the world what it looks like for Christ to love the church and for the church to submit to Christ. So speaking for myself, I won't pretend for a moment that I've got all this sussed in my marriage, and I'm sure if Sue was here she would confirm that for you. And we, we may be deeply aware of pain and anguish and challenges in this area in all kinds of different ways. And I just encourage us to, to talk about those things with, with appropriate people, whether that's in a small group, whether it's one-to-one -one with a trusted friend. I'm always happy to talk with people as and when that would be um, helpful. Uh, maybe to ask a question later in the, in the Q&A after the service in a few minutes. But yet again, we need to see that marriage is here to point us to the gospel. The gospel isn't for perfect people. It's for people who realise we need forgiveness. We need a fresh start, whether it's for issues within our marriage or relationship or in any other areas of our lives. God is a God who meets us where we are at and he does that with his grace. Jesus says to us, Church, I love you. I laid down my life for you at the cross. You are my bride. And we say, Jesus, it's a joy to submit to a God who loves us, who has our best interests at heart, who knows us better than we know ourselves. So if you don't know this, Jesus, can I say that's the absolute priority from these verses? We can only start to put these things into practice when we understand how much we have been loved by him. But let's pray that each of us, whether we're married or not married, will see how the gospel is God's visual aid 
for marriage and how marriage is God's visual aid for the gospel and then live more faithfully in the life we've been called to. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word. We reflect on these deep challenges we read here. We pray that you would continue to shape us by the gospel. So whether we're married or single, we would find joy and hope in knowing Jesus, in submitting to him, and then modelling that in our lives, modelling that in our marriages if we are married, seeing that in the marriages of others, celebrating that where we find it. And help us too to help one another where this is challenging and difficult for whatever reason. Help us to be able to bring words of grace and hope, forgiveness, that point us to how much God loves us in the midst of all the mess of life in a fallen world. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.